Hey, before we start, we're excited to announce that we have a new sponsor. Coffee with the Greats is brought to you by Bixby Coffee. So for season two, we're bringing you the complete package. We've already been bringing you the Greats. Now Bixby will bring you the coffee. Welcome back to Coffee with the Greats, a podcast that asks living legends how they got to be great and what they learned along the way. If you're new here, thanks for listening. You can check out some of the conversations we've had with extraordinary guests from past episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe so that the next episode will magically appear on your phone when it comes out. This is a very special episode. Today we sit down with Mike Milken, whom I can confidently say is one of the all-time greats. He's someone who personally transformed root and branch, the world of finance. As Mike tells us, a personal experience at the age of 19 during the Watts riots here in Los Angeles forged in him a, a personal mission to make financial markets more accessible to more people. In college, he discovered some long-forgotten books hidden deep in the library sacks that led him to believe that most of the global credit market was entirely wrong. Armed with this core thesis, essentially the belief that credit was improperly valued in the marketplace, he went on to finance some 3,000 companies in almost every industry imaginable. Cable, telecommunications, real estate, credit markets, energy, consumer goods, you name it. This is a long conversation, but let me tell you, it's a real masterclass. I mean, seldom do you get to sit at the knee of an absolute giant. Mike is a tremendous communicator and storyteller without giving to hyperbole. You hear him thoroughly unpack questions and then answer in multi-tiered parts. And the data, I, I mean, off the top of his head, he reels off real-time numbers on seemingly any statistic in the world. The accomplishments and contributions this man and his family have made to science, to fighting cancer, to education, and to commerce and industry at large are, are just overwhelming. In addition to hearing Mike's personal story, you also hear him do mathematical magic tricks. I've never heard anything like it. He's chock full of these incredible stories. I'll just say this. If, if you're anything like me, you enjoy getting deep into a conversation with a true genius who's actually been in the arena for over 50 years. This is about as good as it gets, folks. So sit back, brew up a strong cup of coffee or two, and enjoy this episode of Coffee with the Greats with Mike Milken. Well, I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, my father was both a lawyer and a CPA, and my mother was a housewife. Uh, they met at the University of Wisconsin and came out to California during World War II. And I grew up in an environment that was depicted in a television show called Happy Days, uh, or, or Father Knows Best, or My Three Sons. Um, it was a period um, we lived in a middle-class neighborhood, uh, rode my bike to school, 
knew most of the people that lived in the houses on the way to school. Uh, started raising money for local charities when I was eight or nine. No. Um, and uh, my father and mother instilled in me at a very young age that uh, there would not be a good life from their grandchildren, my children, if everyone didn't feel they had a chance at the American dream. And so uh, at a very young age, I became very involved in community activities, uh, medical research thrust uh, upon me due to family challenges, uh, and uh, had a very strong family at our dinner table. You better be prepared uh, to discuss all the world's current events if you weren't up on them. Uh, I was very interested in data as a very young child. I, I never forget, I, my parents had a, a bridge club, duplicate bridge club at their house about once a month. And I was excited knowing 24 to, or so adults would be coming over that I could discuss things with. <laughs> and uh, I was shocked at eight years old how little adults knew. Because <laughs> you knew everything. <laughs> All well, I knew. <laughs> they couldn't tell me every state, every capital. Uh, they didn't know the speed of light. They didn't know how close <laughs> the nearest star was. Uh, Heaven forbid. And that has, uh, an interest in data has carried th through my entire life. And uh, much of the research I've done uh, over the next 65 years uh, has shown that very few people do research, very few people actually look at data, and what they do is they pass on what someone else said. So if you ask an individual, well, where did you learn that? They say, Joe told them, and if you go to Joe, Joe says, well, Enrique told me, and if you go to Enrique, he says, Maria told me, and it's and, and I think it's a very difficult thing in that most people that are in the arena or doing things are too busy uh, to write or record history. They're making history. And yeah. as a result, uh, it presents, whether it's in medical, whether it's in sports, uh, whatever field you're in, uh, it's amazing uh, how little... Um, data, what role data played. Today, it's much different than it was then with a computers a million times faster and data storage costs one billionth of what they used to be. But growing up, I was an enthusiastic, uh, caring individual, and I'm sure I got that from my family. Can you tell us a little bit about your mother's father? I understand Lou Zacks was a pretty extraordinary fellow. Uh, self-taught and uh I, I i'd be curious what what lessons he inspired on you as a, as a as a young man yeah well when you step back and look at people that define a period of time they lived in so um lou eventually dropped out of school he was the oldest uh of his siblings went to work at a young age eventually took care of his family created jobs um, for brothers, sisters, um, and, uh, you know, and in today's world, he would be referred to as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. 
and built a business and retired uh, at a relatively young age. Uh, but when you lived through the Depression you, and you lived through World War II or lived through World War I, there's a number of things that are associated with during that period. And during that period, you were dependent in many ways on the government for your survival. Mm. No individual had the capability of protecting himself as an individual during World War II. So if you're living in France, you were dependent on the government for protection. And when the government essentially fell, you had no protection. In the United States in World War One and World War Two, the U.S. mobilized uh, and the world is different today. We have freedoms today we might not have had had the U.S. not entered World War One and World War Two. There's been books written talking about the most caring generation, those that lived through the Depression uh, in World War Two. You know, you had people that were gone for two to three to four years. Uh, to fight in the war. Uh, and so I am the oldest of the baby boomer generation, those born in 1946, uh, whose parents told them one person can make a difference uh, and one person can change the world. And you might not be dependent as we were on the government for your survival. Uh, there have been only one year in the history of the United States that has had three presidents born in the same year, and that was 1946. Hmm. Uh, President Bush, President Clinton, and uh, President Trump, and all within a few months. And, you know, it's always shocking when you discover that you're older than the president. You know, you, you think of the president being older, but from that standpoint, but it, it was the first year the baby boomers went to college uh, was 1964. And uh, they came with a different um, view of the world than those that had grown up during a period of time that they were dependent on the government. Polio was declared an epidemic in 1952. And we're, we're talking only thousands of people diagnosed, but it was a symbol of this generation of parents uh, who grew up themselves during the Depression and World War II concerned for their children. So what is referred to as the baby boomer generation, the 1946 to 64, changed the world uh, collectively as we know it today, as their parents uh, supported them and they were they went out with the belief that one person could change the world. Uh, and so uh, I think uh, Lou Zacks was, I had an opportunity to spend considerable time with uh, him when he moved to California. My, uh, his wife, Eva, um, contracted what we would call today Alzheimer's the dementia, et cetera, and passed away. Uh, and he spent many, many years in California with us. Um, and I still remember at 93, uh, uh, I don't think I still could beat him and Jen, and I could remember every card. <laughs> he still won. 
And was there anybody outside your family as a child, a teacher or a coach or whatever it may be in elementary school or? I think uh, it influenced you. I did have a, a significant conversation. I remember with my sixth grade teacher. Um, it was when Sputnik went up in the uh, fall uh, in the end of 1957. And uh, the teacher was trying to convince us that if we were under our desk, if you, we, we had the duck and cover drills, we would be safe if a nuclear bomb hit Hesby Street Elementary School. And if we weren't under our desk, we wouldn't be safe. So it took about a month's negotiation. Then I agreed not to disrupt the class, and she agreed. And later I had another teacher agree not to try to convince me I'd be safe under my desk. So, But that, um, that period had enormous influence on me, and then I was... Uh, gifted in math and sciences at a very young age. I developed uh, how to multiply uh, two-digit numbers or more in my head uh, at a very young age. And um, so I decided I wanted to run the space program. I was very interested in space. And I wrote a letter to President Eisenhower letting him know I was ready to serve as the head of the space agency. Uh, unfortunately, I never got a response. So uh, that period of time influenced me. And I think, uh, Richard, the other thing that was a significant benefit is that I went to the only six-year public, what was then called junior high, high school in Los Angeles, Birmingham High School. So as a seventh grader, uh, when I headed out uh, to school at that time, and I was 11 years old when I went. I now was interacting with high school seniors. Uh, and I got to participate, and was a teacher, Marvin Starr, in debate at a very young age in uh, public speaking uh, and activities because the school was one of the largest, if not the largest in the city, being a six-year school. And so things that I might not have been able to do back then until uh, 10th grade, I was able to do in seventh grade. I learned to negotiate in that one of the things the 12th graders did was put seventh graders head first into garbage cans uh, as an initiation. And so I offered to help them uh, with their math homework, their science homework, uh, et cetera. But very rarely was I ever successful <laughs> in avoiding that. Um, and for me, it was also, I think, another thing that changed both my life and, and my brother Lowell's life. In that, uh, whereas where I lived in Encino was a middle class uh, neighborhood. There were parts of the San Fernando Valley more in the hills. There were upper middle. Uh, but Van Nuys had lower uh, middle income and in some very poor areas. So you now were going to school with children from a very wide socioeconomic. And one of the strengths of Los Angeles <clears throat> during that period of time is the wealthiest and the poorest often went to school together. And uh, one of the things that I learned at a very young young age was to try to see the world through other people's eyes. Uh, 
as they saw the world. Unfortunately, most people only see the world through their eyes. And by, by seeing how other people saw the world, um, not even be able to maybe afford a school lunch, this was prior to the government paying for lunches, uh, it gave you a great appreciation uh, for life at every socioeconomic level. Uh, and I think one of the things that happened after we had busing in Los Angeles and other cities in America for uh, racial equality, <clears throat> excuse me, it was an example of something that was a good idea. And for a young child that might've been bussed out of a very difficult area into another area, but it was an idea that had no chance of working uh, because a family that had saved money for 10 years to move to the suburbs from a very difficult area, you were now gonna tell that family that they're gonna bus their seven-year-old for an hour to an hour and a half a day, both ways back to the neighborhood that they saved money for 10 years to leave so they could send their kid to a neighborhood school. And I know when we moved back uh, to California, after pretty much being gone for 14 years in 1978, we had enrolled uh, our children, our, our oldest son in uh, the local elementary school, public school. And we bought a home in an area that there was a wide socioeconomic spread within a few blocks. And we chose not to live in uh, the west side of Los Angeles, uh, where there wasn't as much economic uh, diversity. And we bought a home in a small area where there were maybe 22 kids in the neighborhood. And when school started, uh, a few months later, uh, our son, our oldest son, was the only child going to the public school. Okay. And so the idea of a community school had been destroyed, walking to school, and it was only about five blocks, uh, like I did or rode my bike. Um, no one else in the neighborhood was going to the school he was. And I think this had a very difficult effect on the country, not just Los Angeles, but at other cities. And you had uh, a tremendous change in demographics uh, today. Los Angeles uh, school system is about 72% Latino Hispanic, maybe 8% Caucasian, 8 to 9% African American, maybe 8% Asian today. Uh, but it doesn't reflect in the percentages, the, uh, and so of the community. And whereas when I went to school, everyone pretty much went either to Catholic school or public school, and there weren't a great deal, number of private schools, you had, um, you had flight out of what was the LA Unified School District to Simi Valley here, Coneo Valley, uh, Santa Clarita Valleys, um, out of the San Fernando Valley, and likewise to Santa Monica or other communities uh, where your child would not be subject to busing. So that community has always been very important to me uh, <clears throat> and understanding the strength, in my opinion, of America is the community and the community support. It's called social capital. 
Hmm. Well, um, I'm, cu- I'm curious about, <clears throat> as you were saying earlier, your, your awareness of empathy, of understanding others through their own perspective. Um, you know, both, both of you and dad, you were born in 49. You describe your childhood a little bit kind of idyllic, like these old sitcoms. And yet for each of you, your own fathers had difficult young lives. Dad, your dad was abandoned on a doorstep. He grew up escaping out of orphanages. Mm-hmm. Mike, I gather your father at the age of two was diagnosed with polio. His, his own mother passed away a year later through a car crash. And then his father in his young teens. Um, was, were you always conscious of being empathetic to others? Did your, did your father's story even, uh, was it at the forefront of, uh, of your consciousness when you were young or did, did you just think, look, like you said, the, the government provided this golden era of America and we're able to have socioeconomic diversity to the right and left with my neighbors. How did your own father's youth shape your, your trajectory? Uh, I think a sense of community. Hmm. So <clears throat> being orphaned in your early teens, having polio, having one of your legs not fully developed, um, having to put yourself through school. When we think of relative value of things, uh, my father, one of the few things he had from his parents was a Boulevard watch. Hmm. And the value of a Boulevard watch. The Accutron. In the 30s was equal to an entire semester tuition at the University of Wisconsin. And so... You know, one of the things we've seen when I went to Berkeley, which was rated as the number one undergrad and graduate school at the time in 64 in the world, it cost $200 a year for tuition. Now, today, that's probably 13 to 15,000. And if we took it based on inflation, what would have been, you know, your six or seven hundred dollars. So the cost of education has risen substantially more, 20 fold more than inflation during this period of time. And so the opportunity for everyone to go to school without this enormous financial burden uh, existed for us in the 50s and the 60s. There were many things going on. Obviously, the free speech movement started shortly after I arrived at Berkeley. There's always a commotion generally wherever I go. Uh, And uh, so I had gone to Berkeley to run the space program. That's what I was going to do. And then I came home in the summer uh, of 65. And on August 11th, we had what became known as the Watts Riots. And I met a young African-American man um, that told me he wouldn't have access to capital because of his race, as no one would loan money to his father. There was no chance to have their own business. Um, I thought I knew everything by that point in time. I had seen it, and I thought I knew everything, and this uh, didn't didn't correspond with my beliefs of what the American dream was, a chance to succeed based on your ability, not who your parents were or what school you went to or your religion or your race or your sex, etc. 
So I went back to Berkeley and changed my major to business and finance and began researching. Uh, and I was determined to, quote, um, democratize capital, uh, which I considered part of the American dream. So there are these events, the 60s, uh, the Vietnam War period of time, the free speech movement in Berkeley really started things, but then spread to college campuses over the next decade. Um, Lori and I got married on August 11th, so I would never forget the Watts rise uh, three years later. And we were in Chicago. Where, where did you two meet? We met in seventh grade. In Lou Ramirez's social studies class, uh, who had influence you know, on me and his view of history. Later, uh, after I was out of high school, I discovered that Lou was a libertarian and uh, his views. Uh, he was very focused also on school spirit and community. Uh, and, uh, and I was many things in high school, the head cheerleader and many other. Activities. I wanted to ask you about that, Mike, because I did know you had been the head cheerleader. How did that come to be? The yell leader, wasn't it called? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, in high, in, when I was in high school, today you go to many high schools, you'll discover there are no males in the cheerleading yell. They're Absolutely. all yeah. female. And uh, it was a prestigious position. <laughs> it was kind of the head spirit of the school, but... At the time I was there, um, Birmingham High School was also an open school. So if you wanted to go to Birmingham, you could. Uh, and we uh, were an athletic powerhouse. Uh, and so won the city championship in football, I think nine years in a row, won swimming and many other things. And so the with tens thousand people in the stands it was a very important uh, element of school spirit and we were also part of the government but i'd say uh, my proudest achievement i think in high school is i won this award for community service uh, covering my uh, six years uh, with more contributions to the community than any other student in the history of the Valley, San Fernando Valley at the time. And it really underlined what I thought was an achievement of the things that I was able to accomplish then and been able to continue the rest of my life. Uh, but I do think this environment, being safe and knowing people love you or care for you, it isn't just when you're in school, it's later in life. And and, and, and at work and all the different people that have worked for me over the years, uh, I find they do a better job at work if they have someone that cares for them, not at work. If they know that they're safe at home Agreed. Uh, and someone cares for them, you know, for some, it might have been a dog. OK, for others, it's human beings. And I think the breakdown of the family unit where a person doesn't feel safe or that someone loves them and cares for them uh, at home or not at work, or they don't have close friendships to support them, makes it difficult, in my opinion, for them to do their best job. Quite often they're focused first on acceptance 
and maybe conformity rather than leading new paths or new ideas for fear uh, at work of offending someone. So to me, I think that strong base allows you to do things. It allowed me to decide I'm not going to run the space program and put that on hold um, and go and uh, focus on efforts in finance. And those efforts in the very few months after I returned to Berkeley told me that everything people thought about credit was wrong. Everything they said was wrong. Mm. And uh, it wasn't the Dallas Federal Reserve, uh, but it was the Cleveland Cleveland Federal Reserve that Heckman had done this work and analyzed every single debt issue from 1900 to 1944, every single one. And this is during the Depression and what happened to it. And what did you discover? You discover what people thought was the best credit. Sovereign debt was the worst credit. Uh, And you discovered that uh, the best credit was loaning money to companies and the credit premium or the spread was too wide even during the Depression. Uh, And so what people thought about credit uh, was not accurate. And I think I was the first one in maybe a decade to check out these four volumes uh, at school. And uh, so this quest, I I had to analyze data, not accept what someone was saying. What is that based on? What are the facts? When I was a little kid, I used to sleep with the almanac under my pillow. Uh. Okay. And so when my parents checked if I was asleep or my brother, and we slept in the same room, wouldn't be asleep, I would then whip out my flashlight. And, and, you know, confer with what today would be a data bank. And that's the latest almanac, you know, on facts. You know, today it's at your fingertips. Uh, and hopefully the information you're reading is accurate. With the Internet today, as you know, you don't have to. Accuracy is not uh, a level required in putting information out. It's certainly amazing. true. It's amazing, Mike. Uh I went to Marengo Elementary in South Pasadena. All the things you talked about, the public school system was wonderful back then. And then two years at South Pass Junior High School, we came from, uh, I would say, a lower middle class family background, but we all blended together. And I used to sleep with a flashlight under, I shared a room with my brother, Mike, and I had popular mechanics. Uh, that, that was the way things were done in those days. If, but what's interesting to me is you, the empathy you talked about, the love and support of your family. I don't know if you had a dog or not, but anyway. Uh, and then your mathematical inclinations and capacity uh, all blended together to figure out a way to do a new form of financing. As you pointed out, the St. Louis Fed had all that data. And uh, you were innovative. And you changed the face of the industry, at least from my standpoint. Coffee with the Greats is brought to you by a truly great coffee, Bixby Coffee. Bixby Coffee is roasted and shipped the same day you order it for the freshest, most convenient coffee you can find. 
Now, I genuinely believe Bixby is the perfect coffee to brew at home because I founded the company. And over the years, we've worked very hard to perfect the home coffee experience. I've been a coffee guy my whole life, and I've learned that no matter how you make your coffee, you always want the freshest roasted beans possible. So any coffee that's sitting on a grocery store shelf is inevitably going to be more stale than coffee that's been roasted and shipped directly to you the same day. Not only is our coffee insanely fresh, but it's made of the highest quality, sustainably sourced beans from around the world. Go to BixbyCoffee.com to discover the finest coffee blends and single origins. We offer whole bean, fresh ground, Keurig pods, and even specialty instant coffee. And if you live in the U.S., shipping is always free. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order. That comes to less than 10 bucks to have the freshest coffee you've ever made delivered right to your home. This is the good stuff, I promise. That's BixbyCoffee.com. B-I-X-B-Y Coffee.com. Back to the conversation. One of the questions I have is you mentioned when you returned back, uh, you spent time in New York. Is that correct? Or where were you before you came back to California? And did you keep all the traits that we've just described? And was it challenged by that atmosphere of being uber successful uh, eventually with Drexel and so on? What what challenges were there to your basic underlying beliefs and faith once you became one of the most successful financiers ever. I don't really think I've changed. You no, know, you read these things, you know, Ben. Uh, you're, you're this. I find people, in my opinion, very few people change. So you stick to your knitting. And right? they have certain life qualities. I also believe if you have success at a very young age, you don't really need accolades later. Hmm. And so I competed in these um, tournaments representing schools against other schools. You know, there was eventually, I think, a show on television called the College Bowl. But these were called Knowledge Bowls. And I met other children who, if you said to them, what's 1,111 squared? they could see it in their mind. Mm. There are, you know, people, uh, and people won maybe in a billion, but you actually have people that if you give them something, they see it. And how they see it, they don't really know. And so I developed these systems to know 1,111 squared is 1,234,321. But... I had to develop ways to do these things. And it it really, to me, uh, after sixth grade, I didn't need any more awards. So my view was life was great until they started putting out those Forbes magazine things. Uh, When Lori and I bought a home and I lived in southern New Jersey, and commuted five hours a day, every day. Goodness. 
and it changed the world. It was prior to myself financing the cellular industry, so there was no phones. Uh, I drove about 15, 10 to 15 minutes, got on a bus, rode on a bus, got on a subway and went down to Wall Street. Uh, And I lived in southern New Jersey because um, I had gone and worked as a consultant for Drexel, which was the number one research firm in the United States at the time, headed by Paul Miller, Clay Anderson, Jay Sherrod, among others. And in the late 60s, due to the delivery of the securities at the time, physical delivery, all the entire industry was on the verge of bankruptcy and companies were failing. You were actually delivering a certificate. And I had gone to Wharton and started Wharton in August of 68 um, and majored in operations research, information systems and finance. And that Wharton gave you the ability to waive required courses based on your knowledge, and I was able to waive most of these courses. And so I agreed to help solve the delivery of the certificate problem for them in the industry in exchange for them publishing my research on credit at that period of time. And uh, so I eventually moved to New Jersey. They had the high-speed Lindenwall line, and it was the closest to downtown Philadelphia. It came up one block from the offices. And about three months or so after I went full-time, the chairman who I was working as a special assistant to uh, got sick. There was an accident, and they were now going to pick a new CEO. And I, I was 24 and people were concerned about competing against me for the CEO, um, which seemed absolutely absurd. And so I, they suggested I go to New York and set up the research group for fixed income and trading. So I started commuting. And what was a three to six months assignment continued for the next eight years. But in many ways, it changed the world because no one spoke to me for four hours a day. (laughs) I could read. I could study. I got one of those miner's hats. I actually got one doctor when it has a light. So when it was dark, because it was dark when I came in, it was dark when I was going home so I could read. And eventually... From under the pillow to mounted on your head. (laughs) And I don't think I'd speak to anybody commuting with a miner's hat on, but go ahead. So you were left alone and you pursued what you, you could read, you could study. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I managed, they had eventually developed post-its. And so I managed that when I came in in the morning, I put a post-it on every single person's chair. Did you think of this? Did you look at that? Did you think about this? Uh, what about this? Uh, and so going home at night and, uh, coming in, in the morning, I had all this period of time, but I, I was always with my family at night. Hmm. So y- your children, if you leave at four in the morning or 4.30, doesn't make any difference whether you left at 6.30 or 7, they're still sleeping. Uh, but they stayed up a little later so I could say goodnight to them every night. And so this feeling of family um, was with me this period period of time. And 
the ability to apply data um, and the creation of securities. My work at Berkeley was on credit. My work at Wharton was on capital structure. How do you finance a company? For some industries, it needs to be all equity. Can you create warrants and options that reduce their costs? Can you create convertible preferreds? And so hundreds of new financial instruments were created during this period of time. But I think when I say we had serious health problems in our family, but no different than any other family, one in two men get cancer or one in three women get cancer. And so um, my father got melanoma, my mother-in-law got breast cancer, three or four of our aunts got cancer and passed away. Our children were had seizures. Mm. Uh, and so I would say the elements of my life of medical research uh, thrust into that in 1970, um, education, education. Uh, Equal opportunity to the American dream required an education thrust into that. Um, access to capital, financial freedom thrust into that area, I would say. And this underlying feeling of advancing the American dream, that the strength of the country is that you had a chance to try and try again. And in most countries, you don't have one chance uh, based on who your family is, but you definitely don't have two. And I remember a number of years later, uh, I was at the, at this time, the Soviet embassy in the late eighties with Dr. Hammer, who I had financed at Occidental, uh, Gorbachev and a commissar from the Soviet Union. This is prior to it breaking up. And they wanted to decide they want to go into venture capital and their strength was science. They were strong in the sciences. And so Dr. Hammer asked me to speak to them. I had financed, you know, two to 3,000 companies in almost every industry. And I'll never forget this evening because it underlines what the American dream and what America is about. And uh, so we're talking and the first thing they're thinking of is they have all this water in Siberia uh, and they brought out a bottle of Avion and told me that, you know, they could be providing water to the world. And I, I told them that I, I would probably wait a few years because Chernobyl had happened shortly before that. And I just didn't think the world was ready for Soviet water and would have the same cachet as Avion. Well, but the bottles would glow. So <laughs> I don't know. So we then went on and, and this is, you know, something that really struck me at the time. So we're now talking about venture capital, physics, chemistry and so on, biology. And uh, I then told them, do you know that six or seven out of every 10 companies that are started don't make it? in venture capital. And the rate of return really occurs in the one or two that are outliers and are fabulously successful. And without a second delay, the commissar told me, it's not a problem, we'll just put them in jail. 
<laughs> well, I'm now thinking. <laughs> I don't think they're quite ready for venture capital. <laughs> what a great and, story. So I'm, I could have told them then. I waited around for 15 or 20 minutes, and I told them that I, I thought before we do anything, we ought to study some of the venture capital firms. They were in their infancy at the time and uh, and see what their success rate is and how they handled it. And I, I told them, you know, it's interesting. Many of the people that are most successful had numerous failures before they were successful. And I suggested reading a book by Thomas Edison, you know, who talked about it was perspiration and persistence uh, from that standpoint. But I, I don't think people fully realize uh, in America that you are given different chances. And I never really wanted to hire someone that had not had something go wrong in their life because you learn a lot more from things that don't go right. Uh, an investment that doesn't go right, a strategy that didn't go right. than you do from things that, that go, uh, from, excuse me, things that go wrong than things that go right. And when I look at the development of our medical foundations uh, to me during COVID-19, when I came back from our health conference in South Africa in the middle of February, I had concluded that we were headed to a pandemic. And I sat down with the heads of all the 10 centers of the Milken Institute and told them everyone was going to convert what we're doing and their own individual skills, whether it was economic or medical research or public health, uh, to work on COVID. And my feeling is we're all going to be judged by what we did during this period of time uh, for others in society. And the twin crisis that America has, has had here uh, in dealing with uh, this issue of inequality, income inequality, systemic racism, et cetera. And so one of the things I launched shortly thereafter was a podcast series like you're doing. And I did this so that if I'm talking to the head of the NIH, Francis Collins, or I'm talking to Alex Gorsky, the CEO of... Uh, Johnson & Johnson or Bob Bradway, the CEO of the largest uh, biotech company, Amgen, or I'm talking to the founder of, co-founder of Alibaba, that myself having these conversations, making recommendations or listening to what they're doing should be made available to everyone in the world. So I've been doing, you know, an average of one podcast a day. It's prolific, and it's the it's the highest nutrition content out there. It's extraordinary, um, and I'd like to and and thank you, frankly, uh, just as a consumer for sharing those conversations. Uh, they're they're really extraordinary. I'd like to start talking about medical research, but uh, before, just at this at this time in your life, high yield financing is changing the face of so many industries and you know you you enable uh companies time warner mattel occidental petroleum Cablevision, safeway chrysler toll brothers i'm curious how did you like to run meetings when 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 you were going out and uh pitching companies i suppose how did you how did you set it up 
right before you walked into a room with a young Ted Turner or Steve Ross, how, how did you like to kind of run, run a good meeting? Well, I would say um, if you're talking to me about 69, 70, 71, maybe 72, uh, I traveled. Mm. Uh, beginning in the mid-70s, uh, uh, they really came to me. So when you said that, and I, I tried to schedule all meetings, uh, they would end no later than 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And then they could then pick them up again after two. But between six and two, didn't want to have any distractions because at that time we were providing capital to over 7,000 companies, not just companies that we supported. So mm. I literally had meetings at four in the morning, five in the morning, uh, six in the morning. Uh, and I would say to you, after the Watts riots, I began to read the works of Gary Becker. Yeah. And Gary won a Nobel Prize in 92 for the concept of human capital. And I, he wrote a paper on why irrational behavior could be rational. And this is understanding the world from the other person's eyes. And it had enormous influence and it over the years developed an extremely close relationship with Gary till he passed away in 2014. Um, but he was involved when I set up the cap cure in 93. He came to many of the scientific retreats. He was one of the first individuals that was a trustee of our Faster Cures Center that was set up and many other things. And that that friendship and relationship, what he wrote about as an academic and taught, I put into practice of financing individuals. And it's interesting that you ask that question because I've been working on a book. I don't know if I'll ever be able to do a book, but I've been working on a book that I hope to complete by the end of the year. And I picked one industry, <coughs> uh, telecommunications, media, and entertainment, that you asked me that question. And Richard, you and I can remember there were three television stations and maybe five or six companies yep. that created content. Yep. And how did we get from there to where we are today? And I had a chance to help build more than 100 companies during that process and the creation of the cable industry and the cable networks and mobile, et cetera. And in each case, there was a significant entrepreneur, a risk taker, uh, whether it was Chuck Dolan, who created what is HBO today and what became the cable system in Manhattan, which eventually he sold uh, to Time Warner, or to Time that became Time Warner, right. or whether it was Barry Diller, who's one of the few people that actually went from the traditional media industry to internet or internet networks successfully with his company, AIC, or whether it was Kirk Corian who had this unique belief uh, that created in many ways the casino industry, but a belief in the value of content uh, that actually there was residual value in a, in a content that people didn't necessarily believe in or or whether it was John Kluge, 
who uh, took his company private when they wrote that his accounting was fraudulent and everything he was doing was wrong. And literally three years later became the richest man in America, richest person in America from this uh, company that was battered uh, to Rupert Murdoch, uh, who teamed up with Barry Diller to create the fourth network and other things during that period of time, or John Malone and what was telecommunications with Bob Magnus or Bill McGowan, who took on AT&T only had 99.9% market share. And how could a triple C company compete with a triple A company? Or Steve Ross or Sumner Redstone or Ted Turner or Bobby Kotick, uh, who's created value in a whole different interactive world of video games and esports, And so, how this transformation occurred, these companies needed enormous capital. All of their dreams were bigger than anyone could provide them capital. So it was a great marriage for me with them, uh, being able to apply unlimited capital to make their dreams come through. And they all transformed the world. But Mike, these, these guys... Every name you've mentioned, these are not shrinking violets. They don't succeed without being tough guys and smart. And charismatic. And how did you do, I'm just, as well, let's talk about that. I mean, (laughs) I I know some of them. I've known some of them, not to the degree you did, but I mean, you sit down with Ted Turner. That was a hell of an experience. Made your hair stand on it. How did you overcome their egos or work with their egos well, it worked. Blend your talents. That's, what, that's the question. Well, let's talk about Craig McCall, who would be one of the 12. Yeah, McCall. Yeah. He went everywhere in the world, and no one would give him money. So when he came to me, I, I told Craig, if you needed brain surgery, would you go to a veterinarian? <laughs> yeah. So it'd be hard for people to believe it today. But the most difficult thing to finance of all the industries that I financed, whether a dream of a cable network or a dream of Ted's of an all news station or something, was mobile. People couldn't understand why they needed mobile. And um, so after Craig, no one would give him the capital. We developed a very close relationship. I believed in the future was mobile. I had seen uh, uh, Captain Kirk tell Scotty to beam him up. And uh, Craig had this belief that your communication device was where you were, not the communication device itself. And I'll tell you a cute story. I was telling my daughter, our youngest child, how cool James Bond was. Okay, how cool he was. And we saw one of the early James Bonds. It might have been Dr. No, I don't remember which one it was. And James Bond finds out something. But now he has to tell someone. So it wasn't like get smart and had a shoe phone. (laughs) He's driving around trying to find a phone booth so he can pass on this information. All right, so... My daughter says, that's it. This guy is lame. He doesn't even have a cell phone. Okay? <laughs> well, this was, you know, decades before. 
don't lose the cell phone. And I think there was this attitude. It was the same thing when I financed cable. People couldn't understand, why do you need cable? You got free over-the-air television. And I had people tell me, I'm going to going to ruin my all my financial ideas by financing cable. But so first, I would say, Richard, I had a vision that overlapped with their vision. And when I had told Craig, and I just pick him as an example, here his family, Leroy McCaw and others had built radio, television, cable, uh, other media assets, radio. Uh, and I told Craig that what his vision is going to require so much capital that if he and his family, he had three brothers at the time, want to own a significant share of this company, he's going to have to sell everything. He's going to have to sell all these media assets for decades that have been assembled in the family so that he has a significant ownership in his company. Uh, Bill McGowan spent half his life trying to raise money and my own firm would not let me raise money for Bill. I could be the major trader of MCI bonds or securities. But if you financed MCI, you were cut off from AT&T, the largest payer of fees, the largest company. This was when they had all their R-Box. They had everything in one company. And uh, the chairman of what then was Drexel Burnham, I.W. Burnham was on the board of Continental Telephone, so it was sacrilegious to give money to MCI. And, and they had done financings of like 51.2 million. If anyone in the world would give them a dollar, they'd take it. And I remember I had met Bill in the late 1970s, and then in 81, I finally convinced the firm that that the odds were not fair. I forget what AT&T had. AT&T only had a million and a half employees. And I think Bill maybe had 80. And I told him it just wasn't fair. AT&T would need at least two to three million employees to compete with Bill McGowan. So the odds were stacked against him. And eventually they let me finance MCI and so we did a quarter of a billion and then another quarter of a billion and then a half a billion. And then we did this bond warrant in 83, which gave them financial freedom for the rest of their life. And I would say in the rest of Bill's life after 83, I'll bet you he didn't spend more than two hours raising money. <laughs> so he went from half his time to zero. So when you say one, it's, well, it's a vision or a belief. And most of these people became personal friends. I met Kirk Kikorian when I was 16 years old in 1962. And when I looked at a picture of us in 2004 or six, when we were together, the only one that aged in the picture was me. <laughs> okay. Uh, from that standpoint. So yes, they were determined. And there were a few of them. I'd say Rupert Murdoch, Ted Turner, Chuck Dolan, among others, who were willing to bet it all, Craig McCall. Others were a little more uh, disciplined, let's say, but they were willing to put up everything they had ever created and had built 
to move to the next level. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I held a meeting in 1985 uh, on the Fox lot after Rupert bought 50% of Fox because I felt Rupert as a risk taker and Barry Diller with his talent were the only people that could create a fourth television network, the only ones. Ted, Ted was not sophisticated financially, okay? And, but he had a vision and he had dreams. And my guess is if Ted had been running all of what we call movie studios, Netflix wouldn't exist because Ted's view was every bit of content you created should only play on your networks, your own networks and not play on anyone else's network. And eventually he resigned from what was then the board of Time Warner when they were feeding Netflix like all the other studios were feeding Netflix. And so each of them was an, an unusual person. They were determined, uh, but it was my view that of backing the most important asset was human capital, the talent of that individual. And yes, whether it was Dr. Hammer, but Ray or Ronnie played an extremely important part at Oxy or whether it was Ted or whether it was Steve Ross or Sumner Redstone, we were on the opposite sides of things with Sumner, but eventually when he won Viacom, we financed Viacom for him. So each one of these individuals, I would say I helped John Malone had a PhD but I helped give John in the late seventies, a PhD in financial structure. <laughs> and I would say more than almost any individual in the last 40 years, John has used financial structures to maximize value. But today these companies have all for the most part ended in about five or six companies. So if you looked at AT&T today, there might be 15 or 20 companies I finance that are inside of AT&T, Telepictures, Lorimar, New Line, Warner are inside of AT&T, Direct, you name it, I can find them all inside. Now, whether that entrepreneurism still exists, uh, we don't know how you capture it in those individuals, home box office and so on. Uh, so, if you look at Verizon, MCI is inside of Verizon. If you look at Sony, Columbia Pictures is inside of Sony. CBS Music is inside of Sony. Uh, today, the MGM library is inside of AT&T. Turner is inside of AT&T. As a board CNN. member of AT&T, I thank you for developing this and giving it to us, sir making them attracting us to acquire. <laughs> I know you're a board member and um, AT&T, and I'm gonna be reaching out. I spoke to Randall Stevenson about it. Um, AT&T did a show on the American dream. Huh. And um, it was done by a good friend of mine who developed it for him and it ran, it wasn't AT&T, it was Turner that did it on the Turner Networks. 
And it was about the American dream in the movies and the entertainment industry. And it talked about people that came to the United States and were expecting to see just cowboys and Indians because their idea of the United States were these movies they were watching on television and what that American dream is. And it shaped much of my thinking beginning seven years ago. I became quite personally very concerned about how people viewed the free enterprise system and the American dream. And so we made some donations to our various foundations. We bought every building on Pennsylvania Avenue between 15th and 17th. It used to be called the People's Street, across from the Treasury in a diagonal to the White House to create the Center for Advancing the American Dream. And advancing and that we're always working to make sure it's available and it's not equal across the country. And if you were born in Salt Lake City, you have a much higher probability of rising from the lowest socioeconomic to the highest in your lifetime versus many other cities in the United States. Uh, But we saw that dream as not just the American dream. And so America, let's say with a small a, as an adjective, and it exists all over the world. So we have set out to film 10,000 people as to what they think the American dream is. A dream of a chance for upward mobility and success based not on where you were born, based not on who your parents were and not where you went to school, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're married or not married, Um, uh, your religion, your race, and a chance to get access to capital. So that show that was made for Turner on what the American dream is just further emphasized. Now, when you see studies a number of years ago on the fact that the majority of people under 30 think maybe a socialist system or a communist system would be better. And when you see in America today that maybe only a quarter of people under 30 think their life is going to be better than their parents today, you can understand the challenge. And these studies were all done prior to the crisis that we've experienced in 2020. And so This has challenged me and and I've challenged all of our foundations and other activities here to build a center both digitally and physically that talks about the American dream and studies how we can make it available to more people. And so we created four pillars that are really my life, uh, education and the educator. And you asked earlier, is there a teacher? Is there a mentor? And I mentioned Mr. Starr and Mr. Ramirez. And in many ways, beginning in the 60s, Gary Becker was a mentor uh, for me. The entrepreneur and innovation, these thousands of people that became close friends who changed the landscape of our country. Uh, Medical research and public health that has dominated my life in the last 50 years, but 
more than 50%, Richard, you would know of all economic growth in the last 200 years is traced to public health and medical research. We have in the first four million years of evolution, we extended life by 11 years. So if you believe in evolution, four million years as you trace living organisms back, by 1900, life expectancy had gone to 31. Today it's 73, 74. And so you have dramatically changed the world here uh, by extending, not only extending life, but improving the quality of life. And when, and lastly, uh, the last field is access to capital. If you start your day with a cup of coffee, then you're probably making it at home these days. The Bixby Coffee Club was designed to make your mornings a lot easier and a whole lot fresher. It's really simple. To join the club, all you do is select one of our delicious fresh roasted coffees and then choose how often you want it. That's it. If your home tends to go through a bag of coffee every couple weeks, now you'll have a fresh roasted restock sent just in time so you're never empty handed. Go to BixbyCoffee.com and join the club. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first shipment. This is insanely fresh coffee. You know it the moment you've tried it. That's BixbyCoffee.com, B-I-X-B-Y coffee.com to join the club. Back to the conversation. When you ask Americans, and a study was done a little while ago, what is the American dream? Number one answer is freedom to live your life and express your views. That's the number one. It's like 86% of people. The lowest response was uh, personal wealth. But one of the other higher response was enough in finance and to retirement to be able to live your life and do what you'd like to do. But raising your children, freedom, freedom of speech. Most people in the United States are not fully aware of what exists around the world. They haven't experienced it. And that's one of the things we see as we're interviewing people in every country on the planet. And we're also interviewing people in the United States who have come from every place on the planet. And it's been very interesting. Our, our Milken scholars that we started in the 80s with kids in the lowest socioeconomic group. Uh, they have come from more than 40 countries. Their parents have come as immigrants from more than 70 countries. And it's been very interesting how they've reacted. Our, we pick them up at 16 to 17. They stay with us the rest of their life. So our oldest kids are 47 or 48 today. And they've now been with us for 30 years. Um, it's been very interesting to see their reactions as we've had these sessions with them. It's been similar with our young scientists, how they've reacted in our work in medical research uh, that we started you know, 40 years ago with them. Uh, and so it, it gives me a kind of a timeline as the world has responded to the crisis of 2020. And uh, people 
don't really understand what has worked. So we're all talking over a Zoom and seeing each other call today. Technology has worked and has allowed to connect us and allowed us to Zoom our grandchildren, okay, and friends and other things and be part of society. Food distribution has worked. And we've discovered that uh, frontline workers or first responders might be the person in a checkout at a grocery store or a person delivering for one of the delivery services or a person picking fruit in a field or vegetables to keep them. And so that is where power has worked, access to electricity and other things. And except in New York or parts of New Jersey and for a moment in New Orleans and a little in Houston, we have been prepared and we really haven't had surges from that standpoint. And it's today we are monitoring 203 vaccines, 300 antivirals, antibodies. And I'm personally right now Uh, between government, philanthropy, agencies, companies, trying to make sure in October we have vaccines into human beings, widespread. So, uh, and I remind our teams, whether they are in Hong Kong or Singapore or UAE or London or New York or Washington every day, okay, that we will all be judged someday by what we are able to accomplish during this period of time to shorten this period of time in many ways. No, I am so happy that you spelled all this out to us over this project of a conversation because I don't think the broader populace understands what you've done uh, in all these fields. We, Everybody, as you said, should have the right to fall and pick themselves back up. They should have the right to capital, et cetera, et cetera, at least access, if not the right. And to treatment, health. What you've done, Mike, is laudatory and fantastic. And uh, Miles, I think this has been an extraordinary discussion. It's, it's, it's incredible. incredible. In, in all these efforts, you know, widely referred to as Herculean through even just your, what you facilitated through medical research, through curing cancers, all sorts of cancers in this uh, American dream project. Mike, I, I have a, I have a question just, just as an advice. Um, you know, I, I was born in 1983. So at the beginning of my senior year in high school, I went to high school in DC. Uh, I saw with my own eyes, the plane hit the Pentagon. Seven years later, been working for just a little bit. A lot of my colleagues incurred mountains of uh, student debt. A financial crisis hits. A decade later, most of my friends started settling down, maybe some kids and a mortgage. This pandemic arrives, bringing a possible depression with it. And yet, what you said earlier in our conversation was extraordinary to me, which is you had hours of no distraction. As a, as, a, as a young professional hustling, you could focus. I know in my life, if I could just focus, I could execute more. And there's so much noise. There's just infinite noise because of this 
evolution of the phone screen that has, you know, that is installed on my body. How, how would you advise tomorrow's generation to simply focus deeply and disciplined? How, how do we do that? Miles, you've said something that is so profound uh, that has really affected my life uh, in recent years. We did a study at the Milken Institute 25 years ago. How do you feel about the financial system? In Europe, most people felt it was not working for them, but they accepted it. In the United States, most people felt it was working for them. And what you've described here for people, younger people in this country, they've experienced the dot-com crash, the idea that all these things and wiped out trillions of dollars of value or expectations of these companies. It was way early in the internet and connectivity. And it's not related to today, but this dream, I'm a young person and I'm gonna go work for these companies, crashed. The student loans with the unbelievable escalation of prices, 20 times inflation. Uh, the idea that the government will loan me money, I don't have to pay interest, I don't have to pay anything, and I'll worry about it later. And then when they discover later, uh, they discover you give you if you go bankrupt, you can't get rid of your student. And now many people feel, well, for the rest of my life or for the next 10 or 20 years, I'm going to be paying off my student debt, what it would have been free cash flow. And so I have been particularly concerned for at least 15 years now and that I don't believe we should have any student loans. And I think there's another way and whether it's a nonprofit way and a for-profit way, but We've experienced this with our scholars. Um, we have not taken anything, but if you needed the money to go to school or to go to early childcare, I should take it, make an investment in you and we'll make a deal that you get the first 100,000 and then I get 20% of anything over 100. So, but you have no debt, you have a partner and that partner is focused on internships and your career and making sure you succeed because the better you succeed. Now, this might be a nonprofit who then reinvest money in the next million kids, et cetera. But when you think about young people, they think about student loans. They think about the financial crisis of 08, 2010. They don't remember 74, which was even worse. But, and they, but they might remember their parents might have lost their home. Someone trying to foreclose on their parents' house. Uh, the parents couldn't afford to fix the door. The grass died. They might have been a little kid going to school and say other kids were telling them, you, you have the worst house on the block. What's wrong? So student loans, housing, pandemics, racism, is the financial system working for you? So when we did a study, you know, a few years ago, the same in Europe and in America, most of them said the financial system's not working for them. And so this is a challenge to the free enterprise system. 
And I think student loans are a big part of it, of what that experience was and the memories of that financial crisis uh, from that standpoint. And the realization that we keep telling people that the American dream is your own house. The home ownership today is about the same as it was back in the 60s in America. It hadn't changed much, but most of the financial crisis involved getting people into homes they couldn't afford. And so when you live in an apartment and you need to clean the carpets, you tell your superintendent. Or if the garbage disposal doesn't work, you tell the superintendent. Or if the toilet doesn't work, you tell the superintendent. When you buy a house and the government loans you 95% and gives you the down payment to get in a house, you don't realize that there is no superintendent, it's you. And now you're house poor. In 11 Asian countries, transportation and housing makes up about a sixth of their income. In the United States, it makes up almost half. So in these 11 Asian countries, they spend almost as much on tutoring and supplemental education of their children as they do on housing and transportation. And so if you go to Korea, 80% of the kids go to school before school or after school. Now, during COVID, it's different. If you go to China, probably 50% of the middle-class kids go to English language schools. Mm. But when you're house poor or car poor in America, you don't have money for supplemental education of your child. And so these are challenges. And in a world of income inequality or other factors, it's heavily related to education. In Singapore, where we used to own 50 schools, starting at six, the two most requested courses were coding and robotics. So when I look at kids that were coming out of our schools, by six, they could add, subtract, multiply, divide in many of our schools at six. They were fluent in Mandarin and English at six. Uh, and we haven't necessarily challenged our kids as much as we should. So. There's a lot of challenges, but I think you've hit on something that is so important, Miles, and that is, is it working for you? And we need to find a way of educational opportunities without burdening people with that, and not only burdening the student, but burdening the family from that standpoint. Well, here's to continuing on that path. When, when, when does the um, advancement of the American Dream project kind of open or scheduled to open uh, to the public? Well, it's open digitally. So it's, you can go and we expect 100 million people eventually and it'll open physically in a couple of years. But, you know, I think I still have thousands of arrowheads in my back that I haven't been able to pull out or my chest. And, you know, to be an agent of change, it scares people. Mm -hmm. I remember when we launched MTV and Bob Pittman's idea, who was working for Warner at the time. And we took MTV public in 74. 
And we bundled in the cable bundle, MTV, HBO, and ESPN. Now, we did that, so try to get that canceled. The MTV, Nickelodeon Network, the sports or the movies, somebody in the house is going to be objecting. But we had plenty of people that didn't want their kids to go to that irreverent MTV. Okay, they'd rather them be someplace else. And so there's a lot of change. Fear. The fact that by 83, people could have access to capital, and it was now a level playing field, that Ted Turner, if he had dreams, or Rupert Murdoch, or Sumner Redstone, or Bill McGowan in the 70s, if they had a dream, they were now a competitor. There's only maybe 500 companies in America that are investment grade, and millions Millions, more than 10 million that are not. Now, you have to compete with people you never had to compete for. You can understand why people think eliminating me was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you go back to the UK, you had the mercantile class and you had the nobility. Well, when the nobility could no longer compete with the mercantile class, they went to the king and explained, we have to have new rules here. Uh, It's like a horse race. We need to put more weight. We need to have more barriers. We need to have more restrictions on them. And so as you look as how the 60s and then the 70s, when we were launching all these things, and the most important financial period to me is for people to study 73 to 77 or 74 to 76. But You had people introduce in the mid 80s that if you weren't investment grade, you couldn't deduct interest. Mm -hmm. You had people introduce that you could not loan money to a company that wasn't investment grade. And I remember I went to Washington and I should have been more receptive to the wave that was coming, but we made a list of all these states where there was not one investment grade company headquartered in the state. And I'll never forget, I was traveling with Howard Marks, Mm -hmm. and I had another person that took us around who was not in government at the time, named uh, Dick Cheney. And I remember I went to visit the congressman from North Dakota, and there's only one congressman. And he told me, I showed him that you're going to support legislation where you're going to suggest that no one should loan any money to any company headed North Dakota. Is that what you, is that what you want to do here? And he told me, well, you know, if we have to get rid of this scourge of junk bonds, people in North Dakota are willing to sacrifice. Hmm. So their understanding of it was so far away from reality um, at the time that, it was concerning. Mike, I wanted to ask you, uh, we were just talking about being a change agent, challenging the status quo. How you can be rejected or taken down or at least put through trial and tribulation. You went through trial and tribulation. What sustained you during that setback period? Was it your faith? Was it 
Was it confidence in yourself? Was it your empathy for others you were with? Or what, what sustained you during that, that setback period? Um, I, I think of this period where day became night and night became day. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and was family. And I think, you know, when you watch these spy thrillers or something, They're always looking for something that is core to the individual, their beliefs, etc. So for me, it was my family and how, and when I lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, our babysitter's parents were worried about this young couple on whether we could make our mortgage. How could we make our mortgage? And so this is in the 70s. Um, and I had become independently wealthy in the early 70s um, by shoring up in our economy during that difficult period of time. So they didn't have any idea of wealth. I took all the neighborhood kids and I my kids to the grocery store every Saturday to see the world. Where does this vegetable, fruit. They'd run all over the store to collect things. And so it was always family. And the idea that they can separate you from your family, to me, is like a very difficult thing to deal with. And so ultimately, but during the French Revolution, it was hard to explain to people what reality was. And here, to me, Richard, it was kind of the last shot. Uh, you had people uh, force state funds to sell every all their debt and combining debt, and it wasn't investment grade. You threw artificial through the media and people making up stories, which they're still making up today. Uh, you drove prices down from that standpoint. So uh, it was, it's knowing the truth, knowing who you are uh, and family allow you to get through many things. You know, I forget whether it was Saransky or Solzhenitsyn that wrote about when they were in the gulag First, they cut off visits, then they cut off this, then they took their books, then they took their paper, so they couldn't write things. And then he commented that he knew he had them now, because they couldn't take anything else away. Okay? And so, reading about those things, uh, to me, uh, they were in far worse situations. Now, as you know, in medieval times, you had the press. And unfortunately, when they were pressing you, eventually you died as they... And here we just have the press. Uh, and it's difficult. You know, it's very difficult. But you have a world that was created uh, for your family during that period of time. And... 
you know, it, it, it's the ability in the world of the internet to put out something that is 100% false. As you know, um, two major networks that I directly or indirectly finance, CNN and Fox News. Okay, I get people calling me up all the time, telling, blaming me. My friend Ted Turner, they can't really blame. Ted has a number of serious health issues today. <clears throat> but they talk to me about the crisis, constant crisis network. Okay, it's always a crisis because viewership goes up three to five fold in a crisis. That, and I think when we think of COVID-19, I was reading, quote, the leading uh, news local paper in New York uh, headline. The, and, and I was working on our COVID and I noticed not one person died in New York on a particular day. So I was wondering, what's the headline? Is the headline not one person died today? No, the headline was, it's going to be terrible and worse than ever come the fall. So I don't know if the media, as we know it today, is going to lead with the advances we've had related to COVID or not, because they have told us how many things are constantly going to go wrong, and this is bad, and that's bad. If we get this vaccine, what's going to happen? And so they are so vested in this issue today that as we have these successes, how are they going to respond? The stock market has responded in the United States totally different. And if you had read the headlines, you're having a real hard time of dealing with what's happened when tens of trillions of dollars of value has been achieved during this period of time and why investors are optimistic, but the government has responded. And if you were at the Fed, they become so much more sophisticated at what they need to do. And the leadership at Treasury and the leadership in the Fed and the leadership in Congress from both Republicans and Democrats has provided this economic safety net. And I don't have to tell you, if you actually calculate the interest I'm just not sure if I'm borrowing at zero, whether that's debt or equity. And <clears throat> you and I can remember when the government in 81 sold 30-year debt at 14% yep. and short-term debt was 21. Well, if I'm selling long-term debt at one versus 14, the interest on 14 trillion is the same as the interest was on 1 trillion. Mm -hmm. And so if the government has a 1% reduction on 20 trillion in debt, that's 200 billion. And if it's paying 1% on 5 trillion, that's 50. So the interest at the government level has actually going down in spite of more borrowing in history. And so obviously, I'm sure if you were at the Fed, you'd be trying to convince everyone to push out the maturities so we can take the volatility and let's go sell some perpetuals. If Austria has 100-year debt yielding 
the U.S. ought to be able to do something. And so you and I know the great risk is interest rates going up and the government sitting with $25 trillion in debt. And every 1% they goes up, cost them $250 billion. If it goes up 5%, that's one and a quarter trillion a year. So let's go lock in these interest rates today. But I, I think in answer to your question, knowing the truth and having a strong base, a family, religion, whatever that strong base is, gets you through difficult times. When they told me I had 12 to 18 months to live in 93 from cancer, mm. you know, you have to sit and reevaluate, what are you gonna do? Here I've been funding cancer for 20 years, but I know really nothing about prostate cancer. I've been funding melanoma and glioblastoma and other types of things. You know, I had to decide what am I going to do different? So I didn't eat anything except fresh fruit and vegetables for two years to try to, and I, and I visited with chi doctors in China, healers from Russia, Ayurveda doctors from India, witch doctors in Africa, Indians in the Northwest Amazon, uh, I eventually settled uh, with both Western medicine and Ayurveda medicine out of India. So, you know, you you attempt to adjust. I know it did. I had to lay down for 24 hours when I discovered that my life expectancy was that short. Thank God, 27 years ago. And I've had a hard time adjusting to the crisis of equality, racism, equal opportunity, since my life path was changed by the Watts riots. Uh, I had financed Reg Lewis in the 80s, the first African-American, we committed a billion dollars to Reg. I viewed Reg as the Jackie Robinson of business. And many others that I've supported to, to have to be faced with this in 2020 when I thought that I had effectively addressed it in the 1980s, uh, you know, it was quite a take back for me. It brought me back to an event in 1988 or 89 in Harlem. I was teaching school at 127th and Morningside at an elementary school when I had the government beating on me uh, just to try to stay in touch with reality of what reality was. And that night we took our milk and scholars to Sylvia's restaurant for dinner. And Reverend Jackson was running for the president of the United States and was a good friend and is a good friend. And, um, he had won a primary and he had lost this day. I forget what primary it was. And one of our students from A. Philip Randolph High School, which is the only, at the time the only public high school that we adopted in Harlem, said we're losing. And a waitress who was in her 60s heard her and said, we're not losing, we're winning. He's running for the president of the United States. We're winning because he can run for president of the United States. 
And it was so interesting. Uh, President Obama, you know, was elected 20 years later. And I think a large part of it was the fact that Reverend Jackson had run for president at that period of time. So seeing these things and what's occurred this year are like flashbacks for me. Flashbacks from the 60s, the 80s, and other periods of time. Uh, and are concerning and just gets me to double and quadruple down on our idea of financial freedom and access to capital. And we spent a lot of time focused on food deserts, but we don't foc focus historically in our country as much on medical deserts or financial deserts. You have communities where there's not one bank in the community. And so I think a lot of the work we've done this year is to try to get funding for these minority and small banks so they can reach their community and how we're gonna provide financial literacy going forward to our population. But these things create flashbacks and I've seen the worst of our government and I've seen the best of our government. And I can assure you, and I've visited I used to visit up to 30 countries a year. I haven't done as much traveling. I was in five in the first two weeks of February and haven't left since. But I can assure you, the US is the best country in the world. Here, here. And I am so lucky I was born here into this country. Yes, we, we, won, the, uh, we won the lottery of being born in the right place. That's correct. All of us are grateful and should be grateful for it, but we have to make it better, Mike, and you're helping do that. Miles, we're almost out of time. Any other questions for? Our Just exceedingly gracious with your time and um, and with your life's example. Just such an inspiration. I, I think just going out, I would I would just simply ask, what what is your prayer for your grandchildren and for uh, and for the country they live in twenty five years from now? Well, my prayer for the, my grandchildren is the American dream is alive and well, and world feels that way. Uh, if you're talking 25 years ago, uh, today, from today in the future, I would say my major concern has been that as we solve medical challenges in Africa, most of the growth in the world's population if not all of the net growth in the world's population is gonna be in Sub-Saharan Africa. At current birth rates, Nigeria would have 2.3 billion people by the end of this century. And little Niger would have 800 million. And maybe 40% of all the children in the world will be in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so if we don't create opportunities for this burgeoning population. At one time, median age in Uganda was 15. So the United States last year had the lowest birth rate in the history of the United States, the lowest birth rate. My goodness. You had more children, less children born in the last few years in the United States than you did 30 years ago. Uh, China, working population has peaked. And so to me, this American dream has to be alive 
throughout the world, the United States had 50 million people come from Europe in the 1800s. No airplanes, risky travel. The vast majority of the people living by 1900 in the United States had come from Europe in the 1800s. We're talking about what happens if a billion people, two billion people are on the move if you don't create opportunities. So to me, no matter what you've been able to accomplish in other parts of the world, if we don't find a way, and we have directed a lot of our efforts to this, to create opportunities in sub-Saharan Africa, it might not make any difference uh, with You have a very young population. Two-thirds of everyone living with HIV or AIDS lives in sub-Saharan Africa. You've gone from passing AIDS on in childbirth, having a 95 or a 98% probability to only having a two or a three with proper treatment today. So people, you're going to double life expectancy in some countries in one generation. So I would say for 25 years from now that every country believes in the American dream with a small A, the dream of upward mobility. If you say to me in my travels in the world in recent years, what country believes in the American dream the most? It would be Vietnam. Yeah. What country believes in the free enterprise system the most, the communist country of Vietnam. Mm. And so uh, this dream is alive and well. And when I read in the paper about how terrible America is, et cetera, I would estimate on my travels that if they could, seven to 800 million people would like to come to the United States, if they could from around the world. And uh, one of the strengths of the United States that dramatically underestimated is the social capital of this country. And one of the things that's made it strong is immigration. Half of all the engineers and scientists in Silicon Valley were not born in the United States. You know, I think 15 to 18% of every company formed in the last 30 years, the CEO was born in India. Uh, A similar percentage was born in China or Taiwan. Uh, We have really benefited from the movement. We had attempted to estimate the value. We put it on about a half a trillion in human capital came to this country every year. The idea that the best and brightest entrepreneurial, you know, individuals, risk takers are coming here has strengthened our country for hundreds of years today. Um, so my view is if, if everyone believes they have a chance, there'll be a great life for my great grandchildren and children and your children. And so Richard, how many grandchildren do you have? I have seven grandchildren. Uh, Fantastic. Only one. They're all girls, one boy. And uh, uh, Miles, you can keep reproducing, by the way, because the more grandchildren are, the richer you are. That's the way I view it. That is true. Lori and I are blessed with 10. 
And uh, for nine years in a row, we had one a year. It was amazing. And I had this friend who's no longer with us, John Huntsman. Oh, yeah. And he used to put, I don't know if you received it, this Christmas card with his whole family. And he ended up having 56 grandchildren, 56. Well, they were very good Mormons, by the way. They're (laughs) so Mm -hmm. a great family values. And um, I had financed um, New Mexico, (laughs) a family in the... um, and he had 84 grandchildren. My goodness. 14 children, 84 grandchildren, one wife. Huh. Uh, just an amazing, amazing. So story. he, in my view, is one of the richest men on the planet. Because that, when you think of your legacy, Mike, your real legacy are your children, your grandchildren, and the next generations from there. And so, so when someone asks me, what is my legacy? I, that is the answer, your legacy. And when you say that to me, Richard, I had a person come to see me. And remember in the office, uh, I didn't really see people between six and two. Right. And so he had come at noon and I told him, you know, I'm just tied up and he would not leave. And he told the receptionist he had the world's greatest portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, what's in that portfolio? He said, he, he can't talk to me about it. He'll show me his portfolio, but he won't. So about 2.15, I came out and he unfolded pictures of eight children and 26 grandchildren and told me that was his portfolio. And I agreed with him. He had the world's greatest portfolio. And so <laughs> when you say that to me, it is so true. And I think grandchildren are actually something, one of the few things in the world that is underrated. They are better than we expect them to be. Well, sometimes I wish I could skip a generation because I've got my hands full, which is two young kids. Very young kids. <laughs> okay, <laughs> dad, dad, pop quiz. What's 1,011 1, squared, dad? I'm not going to tell you because I think you should figure out. (laughs) Well, I can teach you how to do that in 15 seconds. You just count the ones. Yeah. So there's four ones. So you just go one, two, three, four, and then right back down three, two, one. There There it is. Let's do a different one. What is 87 times 83? 87. This this is 10% of all numbers, and it's a subset of numbers where if the last two numbers add up to 10, whatever they are, you just multiply them. So seven times three is 21. And it's always two digits. So if it was a one and a nine, it'd be 09. And if the first two digits are the same, you just multiply the number by the number higher. So eight times nine is 72. Mm. So the answer is 7221. And we've been going into schools for decades, finding who the class thinks are the weakest students giving them these special powers and you can change perception in a few minutes uh, when they discover the smartest kids with calculators cannot multiply as fast as who they perceive the weakest kids were from that standpoint. But there's a different formulation for every single number. And that one would work for 106 times 104, that'd be 11,024 because you just multiplied six times four and got 24 and 10 times 11 and got 110. 
and put them together. So there's one for you for today. Uh, you know, this, test out. This is sort of a mathematical Sesame Street for older men like me. So, well, when you're together, when I have a chance to visit with a nuclear physicist <laughs> from uh, Richard, the age of eleven, <laughs> it's honor. It's an honor to give you uh, some skills you might not currently have. Okay, Mike, thank, thank you. you so much. Alrighty, God bless. A real treat. Thank you very All much. Right. Bye bye. Thank bye. you. Bye. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Coffee with the Greats. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast so that the next episode will appear magically on your phone when it comes out. And check out Bixby Coffee to discover a better way to brew at home. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order and free shipping at Bixby Coffee, B-I-X-B.